Hey everybody, welcome to Leading From Afar, a podcast by remote leaders for remote leaders, aimed at sharing knowledge and experience to help make remote awesome within your companies. I'm Scott Markovitz. I was the first hire at Envision and helped build the foundations of the company for marketing, sales, product, operations, and pretty much everything in between. I've also mentored and consulted with hundreds of early stage startups, including a bunch of remote ones. And I'm Tevi Hirshhorn. I've built and led design and product teams remotely, and I'm a longtime remote work evangelist. Each episode, we'll speak about hot topics, trends, and the future of remote work. We'll also interview some super smart leaders at all levels of remote teams and introduce you to new tools that can help you succeed as a remote leader. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening into today's episode of Leading from Afar. I'm Scott Markfitz with my co-host, Tebby Hershorn. Tebby, how are you doing in this sunny and lovely day? Doing well, Scott. Great to be here. How are you? Doing all right. Got my first vaccine shot last last night, so very happy about that and hoping, at least here in Israel, that we're through this whole thing in the next uh, six weeks or so would be great and move on uh, with life again. So today we're going to be doing our part three of our series on remote compensation. Today we're happy to have Tim Burgess, the CEO of Shield GEO, joining us. I've spoken with Tim a few times over the last year around different topics of remote leadership. So Tim, we're super happy to have you and have a chance to speak with you. Someone that has experience, you know, not only building and leading a all remote company yourself, but obviously building a product that supports remote work. The first step is maybe you could do a little bit of introduction about yourself and Shield GEO. Sure. So I'm, I'm a co-founder. We don't actually have a formal CEO. So the other founder and I split those duties. But so I'm a co-founder of Shield Geo. We're an employer of record service. We just turned six, I think, like tomorrow, actually, 23rd of January, I think it is. is Congratulations. Birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so we've got a team of about 60 people in something like 16 countries, 15, 16 countries, I think it is. We were about 80% remote before covid uh, hit and we had a couple of small offices that we wound down when we, we were worried we were going to have to save costs and so on. People weren't going to be able to use them. So now we're 100% remote, probably just coming out of that to the point where people are starting to explore whether they might want to go back into a co-working space or something. Interesting. Yeah. We spoke about that in a previous podcast, and I think that'll be one of the series that we, we dive into next to the future. One, the hybrid model and, and remote version two. Number two, the future of offices. I'm extremely opinionated on, on both of those topics, but not anything for today. Shield is an employee record service. People who are listening to this probably don't understand what employee record service is. To me, it's core into building out the future of remote work and being able to hire people anywhere. So maybe start off with defining exactly what an employment record company is. Sure. So basically we help companies and people in countries where they don't have their own entity setup. A common scenario would be like an American company wants to hire a salesperson in Japan and they don't have a corporate entity in Japan to employ that person through. We do. So they can come to us. We'll employ, hire the person on their behalf. We make sure that everything is compliantly handled in that country. So we make sure that all the legal boxes are ticked, that payrolls run correctly, that all of the Japanese employment regulations are met and all those obligations are met on behalf of the employer. We do that without our client having to basically touch anything. So it's a pretty frictionless way for them to to have people in a country and to do it in a way that that is uh, compliant with the local legislation. Very interesting. So I, I'm I'm curious is the is your company distributed all over the world or is everybody located in one country? 
So we're in, our employees are, are spread out. I think we've got a big cohort. We used to have a big cohort in Australia. So I think we've got half a dozen people in Australia. We've got about the same number in the UK, US and Philippines. Maybe a few more in a couple of those countries and we're in another 10 or so countries. We went through a period where we would hire anywhere and we started to run into a little difficulty with that. So we shrank it down to where we prefer to hire in a core set of countries. Very interesting. You mentioned before that you were nervous about COVID affecting the business. So you shut down some locations. Has it actually improved since COVID now that, that more companies are probably exploring remote? Yeah. So basically we had a WeWork office in Sydney and our lease was up in April anyway. We'd been talking about, do we even need an office? People weren't really coming yep. in. I was the only person who went in every day. So we were talking about, do we experiment with a smaller space or no space or what might we do? Then when COVID hit and at the beginning, we were really worried about what happens if, you know, things shut down, businesses start going bankrupt. What happens if the US goes into recession? So we did a bit of scenario planning on what it might look like. Given that our lease was up, people weren't really using the office anyway. We thought, let's just shut it and we can save on that uh, cost uh, and see what happens. But to be honest, it was a really good decision because with the shutdowns, Australia has been pretty steady, but it's still been a bit up and down. I think people have felt safer being at home, even if, even if offices had reopened. So that was basically what sort of drove it. I, I think we'll start to see people going back into co-working spaces, but I don't think we'll have any fixed offices again. You've touched on this uh, previously from the data and from your companies. What has the remote hiring picture looked like? Are companies or have companies been hiring the best talent anywhere in the world, wherever they may be, or they've been maybe more focused on specific regions, you know, maybe in your case, in, in, in APAC? Good question, Scott. So for us, it's our view is very tainted by what we see. So the clients that we typically deal with dealing with small employee populations. So it's mostly business driven. So they're expanding overseas, they're hiring in places that typically it's about revenue. It's about generating new revenue or securing revenue. So sure. we see a lot of salespeople, we see a lot of country managers, partnership managers and people managing supply chain. So it's about a US company or a, a European company that's exporting into a new market or that's trying to sell their services into a market and they need a small group of people, one or three or five people in order to facilitate that. So they don't need all the machinery of setting up a company. So just to provide that context. Sure. In that scenario, it's not really about talent. And the location is key to why they're hiring, because if they could hire someone in the US who could service the Japanese market, then why would they bother hiring in Japan? They're hiring a Japanese person in Japan because they need a local and they need someone there who can work normal hours and be tapped into that local market. Now that activity has always been pretty strong. We've seen a big upswing in the last 12 months, which we weren't expecting at all, particularly like November, December for us was, was off the charts. To be honest, I don't 100% know why. I think globalization's got pretty strong fundamentals as a, as a concept for companies thinking if you're an American company or a British company and you're thinking we might have a rocky few years here, the idea of getting revenue from other countries is a good way to mitigate the risk. I also think that there's a greater awareness of what we do as a service mm -hmm. that's driven more business in because for a long time, the biggest issue we faced was people just didn't know it existed. 
But to your point about remote specifically, most of our clients wouldn't consider themselves remote companies. They're companies that have one or two big employee groups. And then they had a few people, generally sales or within particular teams who were distributed around. So those employees, particularly the ones distributed, had a pretty bad experience, to be honest, in terms of integration to the whole, in terms of communication. A lot of those scenarios where everyone's sitting in a meeting room and there's the, that Cisco thing in the middle, yep. people are talking into it, but the person on the other end is up at three o'clock in the morning in India. They yep. can never hear what's happening and miss all the context. We've employed a lot of people, like we service a lot of customers who have that sort of setup, which is not great. What I think is going to change, certainly what I hope is going to change is as the familiarity with remote work continues to improve, companies are going to say, we're used to hire in Boston. We don't have to hire within a commutable distance of the office anymore. Yeah. Maybe we're going to hire anywhere in uh, Massachusetts. Or maybe we're going to hire anywhere on the East Coast, or maybe we're going to hire anywhere in that time zone, which would yeah. then open up Latin America. I think we'll see more and more of that activity. I'm not sure that we've seen it yet. We haven't dug enough into our new customers to, to really work it out. It's interesting. One of the thoughts that I've had for a long time, you know, why teams are hiring US only, it's because they're afraid of the legalities and compliance work. If you're a US-based company, you hire somebody in Montenegro or Uruguay, how do you pay them? How do you handle your own taxes, US taxes, or their taxes, things like that? Going back to the early days in Vision, there weren't any solutions out there. As you've mentioned, the space is definitely heated up you know, with yourself and, and other companies who are now coming into that space, allowing companies to be able to hire anywhere and not have to worry about those compliance issues, legality issues, and how you're going to pay them, wire transfers, PayPal, things like that. So just an interesting thought there. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a real issue around size of company and compliance and their appetite for risk. You know, if you're a 20 person company, particularly if you're a startup, you know, the idea of getting pinged for employment, you know, regulations in a different country is pretty low on your list of concerns. You're more worried about, can we make payroll? Are we still going to be around in three months? If you're a 20 year old company with 600 employees, particularly if you've been in a few different countries, then your appetite for risk is really low. Your expectations of how it should be handled are quite high. That's more of our sort of client base. So they're the sort of companies that I think we're more familiar with. What I think those sort of companies are going to do, the 500 to hundreds of thousands of, uh, of employees companies, is they will start hiring more remotely, but they will do it. They won't hire from anywhere. They'll do it in regions. To your point, it's not just about compliance. There's also the logistics just of hiring and of being an employer and actually of being a good employer. That's something that we've experienced even at our size is if I've got three different employees and one's in India and one's in the Philippines and one's in Mexico, to name three high talent, low cost locations where people like to hire in. Yep. First of all, you can't get them all on the phone at the same time or into a meeting at the same time. Secondly, those countries have very different employment regulations. They're different culturally. So Every time you add a new country into the mix, you get the benefit of diversity and you also get the complexity that comes with it. So I think that's something that at the beginning, you probably don't think about that much. As you start to scale, you realize, wow, okay, if we hire someone in India, then they're expecting that for Diwali, that's a week where absolutely they have to be off. It's the biggest cultural event of their year. 
you don't want to have to learn that for every single employee as you add them on. What's important to them? What are they motivated by? What do they think is table stakes for being an employer? That's so interesting. I, it's funny because I've been remote for eight years. One of the things I've loved about working in a remote environment is that diversity and learning about new cultures where I could be at the beach on the same day that a coworker is ice fishing. Like literally that's happened. Learning just about other people is fascinating. That diversity brings an amazing creativity to the group. But you're saying that diversity is the complexity on a legal standpoint, on a logistics standpoint, that can be just too complex for people to want to face. It's interesting. Yeah, I think it, it's, it is a double-edged sword, like you say. And, and that's something certainly that we experience. I love having people from different cultures in the company. It's one of the things that I, that I really enjoy the most. If you want to hire in a specific country or if you want to hire mostly in certain countries, uh, it helps to actually have a pipeline. So you want to be able to advertise or uh, source talent in ways where they can find you. You might want to tweak the way that you go into the market. You might want to tweak the way that you uh, structure your compensation or benefits or any of your employment policies to, to accommodate them. And the amount of work that it takes to do it, once you've done it, you're like, okay, if we know how to be a good employer in the Philippines, do we want to go and learn that lesson again in Argentina for one person? Why don't we hire someone else in the Philippines? Because we know we're doing it. We know we're a good employer there. And we know there's talent there. Why don't we repeat it? So I think there's a bit of tension there between those two concepts. Interesting perspective. So I guess you're answering one of the questions we had was like, why some companies haven't embraced remote anywhere versus regional. It's kind of like you're saying it's a spectrum. It's how, what your appetite for risk is outside of time zone, outside of countries and learning all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's also other factors, like if you're a small group, if you're coming together as freelancers or contractors, if it's a pretty unstructured environment, then I think hiring from anywhere makes a lot of sense. Maybe time zone and language is the only parameters there. I think once you, once you get to scale and particularly if you're worried about structure, reliability uh, and risk, then I think it starts to get restrictive. Very true. So maybe we'll start digging into the, the compensation piece. This is something that really came to the forefront last year with Facebook and their decision to go remote, but to start reducing salaries for people who moved out of the Bay Area. There are three compensation types for, for remote teams. You actually have the global salary, which Tevi and I are the big fans of. You have your localized one and one kind of your third option is a pegged option. You both from you, the leadership perspective. And sorry, can we clarify for our listeners what those options might mean for if they're not so familiar uh, with those three models? Yeah. Great idea. So global salary is paying for experience wherever they are in the world. So let's say a full stack developer with 10 years of experience gets paid $75,000 wherever they may be in the world, whether San Francisco or in Thailand or something like that. It's one salary for the specific role for the experience. You then have the localized option, which the same, same use case, the full stack person in San Francisco may be getting paid uh, $125,000 while in Prague, they may be getting paid $70,000. So the, the salary is based on the location, cost of living, and probably some other kind of criteria there. And the last of being the pegged option, which is you're maybe using the standard of San Francisco. So a full stack in San Francisco, let's say $100,000 based on criteria like location and experience, then you will adjust that amount. Tim, correct me if I'm wrong. 
Yeah, I think th that's a pretty good summary, to be honest. They're, they're basically, there's two real models. There's uh, paying one salary for regardless, and then yep. there's paying different salaries for different yep. factors, location being the main one. I think how you get to that different salaries is, it gets complicated. So you as a leader, what is your thoughts on the best model to use? And you as the business person who runs a business that pays remote people, what are your thoughts? Is there one optimal model? Is it based on maybe life cycle of the company, something, anything like that? It's a, it's a really good question. There's one other lens here and certainly one that, you know, from the business that we're in, we can't remove. That is how are people paid? So one of the factors for us is we're always hiring employees. We're always paying people as employees through a payroll. So for us, you can't separate that from location. You can't pay someone as an American if they're not in America. You can't pay a Japanese person the same way that you would pay an American person. Sure. Different countries, different structures, different setups. So once we start to unravel that, we can't separate the country and system from the salary. The best example would be comparing San Francisco to Paris. If you tried to pay someone a hundred thousand US dollars in San Francisco, your employer costs are going to be maybe 15% on top in terms of social security and, mm -hmm. and so on. In France, it's going to be closer to 47%. Wow. Your person in the US doesn't get any leave as statutory. You might have an unlimited leave policy, but they don't actually get any leave by law, they're not entitled to any, when they lose their job, they don't get paid out for any leave because even if you have unlimited leave, there's no balance. The person in France gets five weeks, I think it is, plus RTT wow. leave. RTT is, oh, I'm not going to be able to say it in French, but basically when they reduce the working hours to, I think it's 35 hours a week, as part of the deal, they went, some roles we know we can't reduce the hours, so those people get extra leave days per year. And it's treated the same as normal leave. You don't take it, you get paid out for it at a cruise and so on. Then obviously in the US, you can lose your job tomorrow. They won't even let you come back to your desk. They'll you know, escort you out with security. They'll put you out on the street and they'll bring you a box. In France, your, your protections around employment, maternity leave, paternity leave, uh, unfair dismissal are super strong. Mm. In France, you might take a lower salary because you've got this excellent social safety net, you've got excellent social security, you've got excellent employer protections. In the US, you might get paid more, but you don't have any of those protections. You could lose your job tomorrow and, and you're on your own. The debate around compensation models, particularly in the, in the light of Facebook, was you know very much around the tech focus, very much around engineering, software developer focus. Yeah. It's a pretty privileged set where they're not necessarily struggling to find work again. I also felt like the discussion doesn't take into account those nuances. As an employer, I can't remove location as a factor from how I have to employ and engage somebody. So the view that we have is that we want to try and engage people in a way that's respectful of their local market. Salary is a part of that. We want to give people the leave that they're entitled to for the country that they're in. We want to make sure that they're given the employment protections that they're entitled to in the country that they're in. Then we also want to be a competitive employer in that market in terms of how we compensate them. Sometimes we win on that on a global scale. Sometimes it's less than we would pay in the US, Australia, or in the UK. Sometimes it's more. That's the way that we approach it. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, that's really a fascinating perspective. Definitely a lot of food for thought since Scott and I have discussed. And we also generally felt like a global salary is a great way to level the playing field. But you're totally right. It's not a level playing field. Different countries have different laws, and that's a factor. Earlier this morning, I got into a conversation on social media around the specific of someone who is a hardware physicist in France was complaining about how in France they're paid you know, a third less than other places in Europe and maybe half of what they'd be paid in the US or here in Israel. So the conversation then ensued about the global salary, having that insight that you've shared with us about the protections and getting paid for leave that in the US you may not be paid for. It's definitely eye-opening and helps clarify, as Tevi said, just the salary itself is a level playing field, but all the things that are behind it maybe don't make it the level playing field as we think. Yeah. And look, I live and breathe this stuff every day. I've got a bit of a warped perspective on it because we're constantly seeing the differences and we're constantly trying to educate our clients. You can't fire someone in the Netherlands that way, or this person wants to take leave in Japan. You have to let them, you can't stop them from doing it. So we're always aware of these sort of the differentials. There is one other element, uh, like it's something I've really wrestled with. And I've had a lot of conversations internally about it. When we tried to come up with our compensation philosophy, we tried to do it from a first principles point of view and think, what do we believe and how might it apply and how might we be able to bring it into being? The argument that the person's doing the same job, you know, a person in the Philippines is doing the same job as a person in Sydney is doing the same job as a person in San Francisco. They should be compensated accordingly. I think it's a really compelling one. I fundamentally, I can't disagree with that concept. I don't think it can be implemented in a way that's actually fair. The companies that do go down that route tend to be more paying people as contractors. They're saying you're in Lagos, Nigeria, or you're in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina. We're going to give you 50,000 US dollars. You do what you're going to do with it. That's all the involvement that we have. In theory, it works in that sort of structure. This is super fascinating to me. With COVID, we've seen lots of people running away from urban centers, San Francisco, New York, other places, moving out um, to different places. Do you see a shift in the data in the last six, 12 months of maybe a change of the compensation models, maybe moving towards one model versus another model? I mean, I think the localization has always been a factor and the market is set by the biggest employers. When you think about compensation, it's not about cost of living. It's not really about anything other than the competitiveness of hiring. How much does it cost the company to persuade somebody to come and do a particular task for them out of the pool of people that are available to perform that task and a pool of suitably talented people who are available to perform it. I think within country borders, localization is a little tougher to swallow. I think internationally, the number of roles that are truly portable is still not that significant that it's going to see a lot of pressure on salaries. The number of people, for example, in developing countries who are able to compete, genuinely compete against uh, a local hire on exactly the same terms is not huge. At the moment, they're, they're like it's changing, it's getting better all the time and it will continue to get better. It's still a fairly small sector of the overall employment market. I think that sort of shift of salaries increasing is gonna take a bit of time. And you also have to think about 
the economic factors within a country. That's the other issue that I see sometimes with the pay one salary everywhere argument is it's it's generally coming from two groups, right? It's workers in developing countries and it's employers in rich countries. Hmm. Now, they're the two parties uh, that benefit from that model. Employers in rich countries can say, hey, I think people in the Philippines who do this job should get paid the same, paid the same as people in the US who do this job. Employers in the Philippines don't think that because they can't afford to pay US salaries. Yeah. Employees in the Philippines think they should get paid US salaries because it's great for them. They get the money in their pocket. Sure. Employees in the US don't think that because suddenly they're competing against people in the Philippines. So one of the issues, like if it did become really large in terms of volumes, then it could lead to, to some counter effects or, or some follow on effects that I don't think people have necessarily fully thought through. For example, if you can make five times as much doing customer support in Manila as you could make being a brain surgeon, then what's that do for the Philippine society? Like, Sure. It, you question. might have all of this trickle down money that comes in. It's not necessarily going to be the best things in terms of how that society is structured and how people are compensated. Because again, we're not talking about all jobs being given global comp. It's only some jobs. I, I got a question for you. And I'm going to throw in a couple of variables into this question. You're saying everyone should be paid based on, on where they are due to all the reasons we've discussed. If someone in, in San Francisco decides to relocate Within the same country, or let's say they stay in California, even they move to a, a more rural town, would their salary be adjusted? I'm going to throw into that. What about somebody who decides to be a digital nomad? Their residence is, is San Francisco. They start working for a month and now they decide they're going to travel to the Philippines for a month and they're going to go to Iceland for a month. They get all the benefits of their San Francisco salary, but it's a remote company and they're not a resident of the Philippines or, or wherever else. Their residence is still San Francisco, technically. So would that change anything? And the last variable I'm going to throw at you is, would there be a way that you would adjust somebody's salary so that, that you don't want neighbors who live next to each other making different salaries? How would you deal with that? They're very difficult questions. <laughs> the, the first thing to say is this is a super... Uh, difficult topic and it, it, there's no real right or wrong. Like I said, we've gone for a localized model, but I don't feel great about it. I don't feel great that there is this sort of disparity. When we walk through the decisions, I don't think we have an, another way that we can that we can compensate people that's in line with our values and philosophy that we can make work. To those scenarios, it gets complicated really quickly. I think where you've got a pretty clear case is where someone moves tax residency. So for example, one of the issues in the US is if you move from San Francisco to Wyoming, your tax changes. So as an employer, you have to register in Wyoming, you have to be able to payroll someone in Wyoming, you can use PEOs or like the US domestic equivalent of our company to do it. But the state taxes, municipal taxes, all of that stuff changes. There's two parts of that are important. One is the employer has to know where their employees are. They can't just say, hey, work from anywhere you want, we don't care. Because as the employer, they have obligations to put people on a payroll in the place where they are and make sure that they are treated accordingly. 
as a result of that, companies will tend to try to vary the comp. The other factor here is that the reason why salaries are so high in San Francisco is because of location. So when people say, hey, we want to have a global salary, they're not saying, hey, you want a global salary, I want a Mumbai salary. They're saying, I want a San Francisco salary, but why do people get paid so much in San Francisco? It's because there's a concentration of tech companies there. The tech companies are fighting over a small amount of talent, relatively, that's there or persuading people to come in and work there. So they had to pay higher and higher salaries in order to get those people to come and work for them. You could say that if you remove that location as a factor, do those employees need to be paid as highly as they do? Then you're getting into more of a value-based argument than a market-based argument. If Facebook's employees deliver X hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars per employee in profitability, they should be paid the way they are. That becomes a secondary argument. But to go back to your point, when people are traveling around, where they change residency. So for us, if someone wants to go from Australia to Canada to work, and, and we've been through this scenario, if they're in Canada long enough that we have to payroll them in Canada, then we're, we're going to localize them. If they travel around, you know, and change countries every month and they stay on an Australian payroll and they spend all of that time in countries where they would get paid less if they were local there, then in our system, they're the ones who are winning. With all of these decisions, there are pros and cons. And so for us, we put limitations around it. We say you can have a digital nomad experience. We're happy to support you in doing it. We put some restrictions around or guidelines around the visas people have and how long they can spend in places with those visas. We don't want someone spending a year in the UK on a 30-day tourist visa. So if they're going to be there long enough that they become a tax resident, then they're going to get localized. That's how we approach it. You're extremely pragmatic. It makes a lot of sense. You're saying that it's based on the legalized residency. You're also saying that there is some room for someone to game the system to some degree. Overall, you, you still think that it's important to stick to that localized salary structure and pay people based on competing with their market they're in. There's a little wiggle room within that if somebody really tries to beat the system. Yeah, because as you said, we don't want a situation where we have two people doing the same job in the same conditions, in the same location, getting paid different amounts. Uh, so we redid all of our compensation last year and we brought in fixed salary, not bands. There's no negotiation at all. It's you do this role at this level, you get this salary in this location. I was the one negotiating all the salaries. I hated doing it. It was super stressful. I was constantly worried I was making a mistake and I did make a few. That's really painful to deal with. There are groups like... Historically, women are not good at negotiating salary. Underrepresented minorities are not good at negotiating salary. We didn't want to be in a situation where someone was underselling themselves or wasn't aware of what the market was and end up getting paid less than somebody else just because they're not as good a negotiator. Having that transparency and having fixed salaries, it's tied in for us. My final question for, for the listeners here and the tips that you can share, especially as companies now are hopefully looking towards the remote model. Any parting words or advice that you want to share? Tread carefully. The hardest part if you're a startup is do you optimize for making decisions that benefit you now or do you plan for the future, which may or may not eventuate? One thing that we noticed with comp was where we made 
short-term decisions. Uh, so we had some folks, for example, in the Philippines, when we first engaged people, we had them as contractors. Then when we decided that we only wanted to have employees, we're an employer record service, we can't have people getting engaged as contractors. We had to shift them all, and that was super painful. You know, I believe GitLab going through that at the moment, or have been going through that over the last period of time in terms of trying to bring people into employment where they were contractors. It's a hard thing to see into the future to do when you actually have to go through that process where people's compensation is being adjusted, in particular where it's going to affect the amount of money they get in their pocket every month. It's painful. I would be a little careful around those things. The most important thing, I think, and I tip my hat to Help Scout for this, is they have a set of beliefs about the way the world should be and how they want to act in it. I admire their beliefs very much. I have for a long time. Yeah. They act in line with those beliefs, and I admire that a lot. And They have a one salary per role anywhere in the world. It wouldn't work for us. But I give them full credit for doing it and for being, you know, the change that they want to see in the world. In the same way for us, we made a set of decisions around compensation in line with our values and what we thought was important. I guess the one piece of advice is try and do that. Think about what is most important. Think about how people should be treated and, and how you want to structure it because Tevi, you did it to me in 10 seconds, right? You can break any of these models with a tricky scenario and they will happen because people are complicated. When that happens, what you really want to be able to do is go, I need some way to make a decision here on what to do. Having those philosophies or values in place is super helpful because you can go back and go, well, okay, we're making a hard decision, but we're doing it for reasons that we've already agreed are important. Wow. Love awesome. it. Fantastic conversation. Thank you, Tim. Hey, no problems. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for the questions. And thank you so much for our listeners who are experiencing, have experienced one of the different models that we'd love to hear from you. So please be in touch. And gentlemen, again, thank you so much uh, for being on the, the show today. Until next episode, have a great day, everybody. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning into today's episode of Leading From Afar. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can learn more on our website, leadingfromafar.com and subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app. This podcast is all about you, the remote leaders. We'd love to hear from you with your feedback or ideas for future topics and remote leaders we should be speaking with. Mm -hmm.